everybody, I'm Eric Tornberg, and welcome to another episode of Maker Stories, where we explore what makes the makers, what drives them, what they're scared of, how they make sense of the world, and everything in between. This week's episode is with Larry Summers. Larry is the former Secretary of Treasury, former Chief Economist for Barack Obama, former President of Harvard, and current board member of companies like Square and Lending Club. This is a fantastic, fantastic episode. This episode, we talk about his approach to government, academia, tech investing, the rise of Donald Trump and what that means, Barack Obama's legacy, the future of higher education, and much, much more. If you like what you heard, definitely check out Larry's blog at LarrySummers.com. All right, here's Larry. Glad to be with you. Obviously, you're very well known as a you know, Treasury Secretary, President of Harvard, economist, which doesn't seem to get as much play as your uh, success as a tech investor. Um, and you know, on the board of Square, on the board of Lending Club. So I want to ask a few questions about that. First, I'm curious, how did that start? When did that transition happen? And two, curious, how have you sort of changed your mindset as a tech investor? You know, being an academic and an economist and government, how have you, what have you learned in those realms helped you as a tech investor or how have you had to change your approach? I decided after I left uh, government in 2011 that I had substantial experience in academia, substantial experience in government, substantial experience in part through my time in government working with uh, large companies. But in terms of things that were important to the future, important to the economy, I had had less involvement and exposure uh, with technology. So I became interested in learning more about technology, spent some time uh, out here talking to venture capitalists, talking to others who I knew, speaking with Shel Sandberg, was the chief staff at the at the treasury at uh, the treasury in the 1990s, and obviously went on to great success. So I talked to a lot of people, and a fairly substantial range of opportunities uh, came my way. And uh, among the opportunities I chose to take advantage of was uh, serving on the boards of Lending Club and Square. And what I thought was so exciting about them was that they both represented financial innovation for people rather than financial innovation for money, right? There had been a great deal of financial innovation directed at uh, better kinds of new kinds, I don't know whether better or not, new kinds of derivatives to permit different kinds of hedging and the like. And at their core, Lending Club and Square both have the mission of removing frictions so that people can get better deals. Did part of you think that the uh, the tech world, or even just private business in general, was a better way to see the financial change that you wanted to see happen than, than via government or other levers? They're just different. I, I think they're just. I think they're different. I don't. I don't. I think there's a bit of a hubris out here that right. somehow <laughs> companies can do things that governments can't. I don't find that a helpful perspective. I think the role of companies and the role of governments are to do quite different things. Right. The primary role of 
government is to do things that companies can't, that there's no incentive formula that would lead companies uh, to, uh, to do. So I don't think of it as competitive in that way. And when people say we can just kind of do away with government and you know have Bitcoin replace uh, yeah. the Federal Reserve and have for-profit schools replace <laughs> right. uh, Public, uh, public schools and have sensors reflect, replace uh, traffic uh, right. cops. I think that's more often uh, hubristic nonsense right. uh, than uh, real substance. On the other hand, I think there's a huge amount that disruptive businesses can do to uh, better serve uh, consumers, to provide better opportunities for employers and mm -hmm. employees, and that's been an exciting part of being part of uh, right. part of it out here. What do you think of uh, Bitcoin as a viable future third currency? I think there are a number of arguments that people at various points have put forward for Bitcoin that are nonsense. Uh, the idea that Bitcoin will permit the evasion of capital controls uh, is clearly wrong. If governments want to control Bitcoin, they will succeed in controlling Bitcoin. The idea that uh, we're on a road to monetary perdition and headed for hyperinflation and Bitcoin will be a reliable store of value I think is a foolish uh, mm -hmm. idea as evidenced by the very low rates of inflation that now exist almost everywhere. I think the blockchain, uh, the underlying technology for Bitcoin offers the prospect of uh, substantial economies in the management of the payment system particularly with respect to uh, microtransactions, transactions over uh, long distances. And I think there's some real substantial uh, prospect uh, there. Uh, you know, the great question in a way is, uh, will history look back on Bitcoin today as being where the internet was right. in the mid-1990s, something that took off spectacularly, or will history look back at Bitcoin as being second life? Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah. For an interval generating great excitement. And the jury's still out on second life in terms of, you know, it itself didn't succeed, but it might be a precursor to other things like it in virtual reality. It might well, it might yeah. well right. um, be a precursor, and that's why if you ask right. me, will something about the blockchain uh, prove to be important at some point. <laughs> is it more fun than government or uh, <laughs> or academia? Have you, have you ever thought about doing it, you know, full time? I know you're, you know, you're an advisor to Andreessen Horowitz. Have you ever thought about being a tech investor? I like uh, the life uh, that I have. I get a lot of satisfaction uh, from teaching students. I get a lot of satisfaction from doing economic. Uh, research. Uh, I get a lot of satisfaction from thinking about uh, broader and wiser uh, public policies. And uh, that has always been my primary orientation. And while I'm excited to have, uh, have the chance uh, to be involved with startups, and I think I learned a great deal from doing it, and I hope I'm able to make a 
contribution to serving some objectives I care about, like making financial services right. more widely available. What would need to be true for you to want to get back into government again? You never know what's going to happen in those things. I've had hugely exciting chances uh, to work at the Treasury during the 1990s in a time when our country uh, performed very, very well. Uh, economically, I've had a chance to uh, work in uh, with President Obama yeah. at a time when the economic situation was probably more serious than any time uh, since the Depression. So, you know, I've had there are not many people who uh, serve at high levels. Uh, right. The chance to serve at high levels in the federal government for ten years. Yeah. And. What would cause you to change your mind uh, on whether we are currently in a secular stagnation? Oh, uh, the secular stagnation view, as I've put it forward, is a particular view about the relationship between demand and interest rates. It basically says that to maintain adequate demand, we need much lower interest rates than we've needed historically. And that has a set of consequences for monetary and fiscal policies. And, if we were to observe uh, the nominal interest rate at 4% or the real interest rate at 2 and 2.5% with a rapidly growing U.S. economy for some substantial interval, that would be inconsistent right. with the views I've put forward. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't think that's going to happen, but I think it's, uh, I appreciate the question because I think that if one wants to be thoughtful talking about uh, any issue, uh, one should always be prepared to specify right. what one could possibly see in the world mm -hmm. that would lead one to change one's mind. Right. What do you think the next chapter, the next big chapter in your, you know, what do you hope the next big chapter in your life? Well, we'll have to, you know, we'll have, we'll have to see. I'm, uh, I've done, I'm spending a lot of time these days thinking about the impact of technology mm -hmm. on uh, job creation the impact of technology on inequality, how we can uh, maximize the benefits of technology uh, while not taking, uh, not while living with fewer of right. uh, the costs that seem to be present. I think the widening systems within our society uh, manifest, for example, I think the most salient indicator is what's happened to life expectancy, where life expectancy for the kind of people who live in Silicon Valley and work in tech companies with high education and high incomes has been rising almost three months every year right. for the last 25 or 30 years, whereas for those in the lower part of the income distribution, we've seen essentially no progress. And so that's a huge deal. I mean, that is the equivalent of uh, over the last generation, eliminating cancer two times over wow. for the high-income uh, people and seeing very little progress for those with lower incomes. And so I think that is a very basic kind of indicator of cleavages and social distress that I think is hugely important to address. What's an unpopular policy uh, you'd like to see implemented? I, I think the most obvious and glaring deficiency in current American policy is massive public underinvestment. We can borrow money cheaper than at any time in history. We 
uh, have very low materials costs. We have large numbers of construction workers without work. And we are investing in infrastructure at the lowest rate we have since the Second World War. Indeed, on a net basis, taking out depreciation, infrastructure investment is close to zero. Right. That can't possibly make any sense. And you see the results everywhere. You see it in children poisoned in Flint, Michigan, where the water supplies in much lower quality than its Chinese uh, equivalent. Even though China has a fifth of the incomes that we do. You see it in paint uh, crumbling off the walls in thousands of American public schools. Mm -hmm. You see it in uh, LaGuardia Airport, Kennedy uh, Airport. I mean, these are gateways to the greatest, what calls itself the greatest right. city in the world. And yet, they in terrible right. uh, shape. You see it in an air traffic control system in the United States that basically doesn't use GPS technology. Right. And as a consequence, planes circle. Planes are often not, not enabled to uh, take, take off or uh, to land. Accidents uh, are more uh, likely. So I think we've just got a major failure of infrastructure provision. And if we addressed it, we'd put people to work in the short run, we'd expand the economy's capacity in the medium run, and in the long run, we remove a huge burden from our children. Right. Because while people talk about the deficit as a burden on our children, the truth is nowadays the debt compounds at an average interest rate of about 1%. Mm -hmm. When you defer maintenance for a decade, right. the costs accumulate and compound at a rate far, far greater than 1%. Uh, when you were a young person, uh, not to say you're no longer young, <laughs> did you think that you'd be doing what you've done today, like who were your heroes back then? What did you think, you know, in high school and college? I knew that I wanted to do economics from the time I was a freshman or sophomore uh, in college. I knew I was drawn to economics. Just being I in class and just I, I, I come from a family with a number of economists. Always found it fascinating when I was a, when I was a kid, and I realized that I was more interested in thinking scientifically about uh, problems that people had than thinking scientifically about uh, just natural phenomena. And so I gravitated to economics because it uh, combined a combination of a concern with uh, policy and people's welfare with uh, the capacity to be very analytical and empirical, mm -hmm. which were the two things that I was uh, drawn to. Uh, your, your last post was about uh, Trump and the sort of consequences of what will happen geopolitically, uh, I mean, in various ways if, if he wins. And before that, you wrote a piece on uh, Sanders, uh, or at least uh, on some of his policies that was you know, somewhat critiquing them, but in some ways sympathetic. Uh, to the view or the ethos behind them. It seems that you're somewhat sympathetic to Sanders. Would the 1990s, would Larry Summers in the 1990s be as sympathetic to, to Bernie? No, no, I don't, I don't think I would put it quite that way. I kind of believe in looking at uh, 
particular issues and trying to come to the right judgment uh, with respect to them rather than signing on to political movements or uh, particular candidates. Um, during the 1990s, uh, I worked very hard uh, along with Andrew Cuomo, who was then the Secretary of HUD, on predatory lending and most of the practices that came to grief in the middle of the last decade, we actually tried to outlaw. We didn't get very far, given that there was a Republican Congress at the time, and given that the Fed had a rather libertarian view about mortgage lending arrangements. But I certainly worked hard on uh, those issues during the 1990s. I worried during the 1990s and spoke out about uh, the so-called government-sponsored enterprises, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and uh, the dangers that uh, they posed and the risk that they would collapse, basically, because they were insufficiently capitalized. And I worried about uh, the impact of uh, money interests in uh, reducing uh, regulation in uh, certain spheres. And so in those ways, I think I've been on the progressive side of financial reform issues for a long time. We fought very hard to force banks to basically focus more on depressed communities. And in particular, uh, something I worked very hard on was the issue of financial inclusion, the number of Americans lose large amounts of money to payday lenders because they don't have a bank account seemed to me to, to be a problem that government needed to, to focus on. Would there be things, particularly in the derivatives area, that metastasized after 2000 that we didn't see? Yes. Do I wish we had seen them? Yes. I guess I think, and maybe it's self-serving, that if you look at where those derivatives were in 2000, most of what metastasized and led to the catastrophe happened after 2000. And I'm pretty confident that if we had been there, we would have acted as it metastasized. In what ways would you dis Larry Summers today disagree with Larry Summers of five or 10 years ago? I guess the way I put it is, that economic conditions change, and if you have constant values, then as the realities change, the best way to, to achieve those values will change. So in the early 1990s, it appeared that America suffered from low productivity growth due substantially to limited investment due to high capital costs. Mm -hmm. And bringing down budget deficits seemed like a way of reducing capital costs, increasing investment, and spurring productivity growth. And indeed, that was the key to Clintonomics, which mm -hmm. was substantially successful. Right. Today, the problem is very different, uh, with interest rates essentially at zero. There is no capital cost problem. Right. Uh, with inflation predicted to remain below the 2% target for a decade by markets, there is 
uh, clearly a problem of inadequate demand. Mm -hmm. So with the need for demand, with the financial stability risks of low interest rates, and with capital costs not a problem, the policy implication seems to me to be increased public investment. Mm -hmm. So I've got a very different set of views on policy than I would have 20 years ago. Conditions Say changed. 20 years ago, I would have put dominant emphasis on increasing the growth rate. And while I regard that as central now, I think it's also clear that we've seen that what is happening to the distribution of income also has a very important impact on middle-income families, and so that would be a larger part of my concern. Are you terrified of a Trump possible presidency? Do we think it'll never, ever get to that? How do you explain, as someone who's been around it for so long, how is this even happening? I think he's unlikely to actually become president, but it's not inconceivable. You know, it would be very interesting to see how politics in Europe changes in light of what happened in Brussels. Right. And it can't possibly lead to changes uh, for the better. Um, I think that uh, whatever risk one assigned to Brexit a week ago, one has to assign a substantially greater risk uh, to Brexit this morning. And you never know what's going to happen that could affect U.S. politics uh, and uh, Trump. So. I think when somebody's close to getting uh, the nomination of one of our two major parties, uh, it would be irresponsible not to take seriously the prospect that that person would become the President of the United States. I regard right now the greatest threat to American national security and to American prosperity uh, is the prospect of Donald wow. Trump as president. It is a much scarier prospect to me than anything ICE, Anything about ISIS. Trump has uh, demonstrated a disdain for facts, a disdain for civility, a reluctance to engage in a civil way with adversaries that suggests um, a set of character traits that would make him an enormously dangerous man with his finger on the nuclear uh, button, with control of the armed forces, with the vast powers of the presidency. You almost couldn't make this up in like House of Cards or even a show where. Oh, it's it. You know, I <laughs> watch the plots of House of Cards and they seem absurd. And then you think about right. uh, what it is uh, that is uh, going on uh, in our country. Yeah, there are three historical figures in the 20th century who Trump brings to mind: Huey Long. Mm -hmm. Joe McCarthy mm -hmm. and George Wallace and they had a common populist appeal focused on anger at uh, elites that 
appealed to the baser parts of right. the nature of their supporters. The difference is that there was never a moment when Long, McCarthy, or Wallace looked like the likely nominee of a major political party. Right. What do you think Obama's legacy will be? I think history will judge him uh, very well. He uh, came into office at a time when every economic statistic that was interesting was performing worse than it had in fall of 1929. And while there's much to criticize in America's economic performance in recent years, it is nothing like what happened after the fall of 1929. He achieved universal health care and at the same time a slowing uh, in the growth rate of total health care costs of a kind that most analysts regarded as inconceivable in uh, 2010. And with more than one dollar and six uh, in our economy going into uh, health care, having that system work much better than it did eight years ago is a huge achievement. When he was president, you, he became president, U.S. energy independence and $2 gas both seemed almost inconceivable. Right. Today, we take for granted that the U.S. will ultimately displace Saudi Arabia as the flywheel in the world's energy system, and will have the capacity to use the influence that brings for global good. We've seen huge progress on questions like uh, gender equality, gay marriage, during his years in office. I think it's harder to know what his foreign policy legacy uh, will be, and it's something that's very much uh, debated right now. I have a suspicion in the same way that Eisenhower is viewed much more positively in foreign policy uh, today than he was when he left office. Obama will be seen as having had some very important achievements, a transformation in our relationship with Cuba, mm -hmm. a satisfactory mode of addressing uh, Iran without uh, war, and that the United States has substantially withdrawn from both Iraq and Afghanistan. And there have been many opportunities to make huge mistakes that were not taken. And it was Eisenhower, in, in, in the historical memory, Eisenhower is remembered for having missed many opportunities to get the United States embroiled in wars. <laughs> So you were the president of Harvard, you know, a few years ago. In terms of what you think about the future of, of higher education, if you were the president of Harvard today, what would be your biggest uh, goals and opportunities? There's no idea more important for the future than that society should be based on the authority of ideas rather than the idea of authority. Mm -hmm. That's part of what's so threatening 
about Trump. That's part of what has been so important about the American example in the world. There are no institutions that so embody that idea as American universities. They are places where, as a matter of routine, as once happened to me, a 17-year-old student who's been there for two months feels entirely free to tell the most senior professor that their ideas are all wrong. And it doesn't matter who's older, who's got a higher rank. It just matters who's right and who can win the argument. And that's a gift that American universities have given to the world that's of immense value. The challenge for American universities is that they far too often look inwards rather than outwards, and that they are, at one level, sources of great ideas, but at other levels, so traditional and so uh, conservative. Let me take some examples. The median age of the Harvard faculty, uh, professors at Harvard, is now approaching 60. That would not be true of any other kind of institution. The job of a professor is to have great new ideas and to work with young people. Can't possibly be right for them. Mm. Me to be only marginally older than the median faculty member. If one thinks about the scale of these institutions, can one imagine? Harvard had 1,600 students admitted in the mid 1970s in each undergraduate class, and it still has 1,600 <laughs> students admitted. Can one imagine that almost any other type of institution so successful and so iconic would have failed to grow in a large way so as to spread its uh, impact. One of the things I was very proud to have done as president of Harvard was to make it possible for any student with a family income under $65,000 to come to Harvard paying nothing at all. But those kinds of initiatives need to be extended throughout American higher education. And American universities need to do much more to strengthen the quality of America's public schools on which America's uh, future ultimately depends. The really transformative thing where I believe universities are still just scratching the surface is the potential of technology to enable them to reach not thousands of students, not tens of thousands of students, but hundreds of thousands or millions of students around the world. What online education makes possible is two things that very, very rarely go together. On the one hand, you can reach vast scale. On the other hand, you can achieve far greater customization. You can set up lectures as hypertexts so that people can pursue the areas that are most interesting to them. You can give problem sets that branch and provide one kind of question yeah. for students who are moving through the material quickly and another for students for whom it is more challenging. And so greater scale 
and greater personalization usually are in opposition. Mm -hmm. This is an area where they have uh, the potential to uh, complement each other. So I believe that universities have vast and great potential, but that they are governed far too much for the convenience of their faculties. And they therefore function too much like exclusive clubs mm -hmm. and too little like great potentially world transforming institutions. You're writing a lot about technology uh, right now. Are there certain spheres or industries within technology, whether it's, you know, we mentioned Bitcoin before, whether it's virtual reality, whether it's artificial intelligence, whether it's something else that you're particularly long on and you know interested in sort of getting involved with? I'm, you know, I've been particularly excited by financial technology yeah. in part because I've had background yep. in financial questions. I'm particularly excited about the applications of uh, big data mm -hmm. and artificial intelligence because that seems to me to represent the, the further extension of uh, empirical methods to potentially very great benefit. What's it like working with someone you know like Barack Obama, but also someone like Jack Dorsey? How do you compare sort of the best of you know tech with you know the, the president? Very very different people in very very different roles, and I'm not sure that either of them would, would particularly see the see the comparison as apt. I think the difference is. The uh, difference between a business entrepreneur or, for that matter, a professor and a president is that a professor or an entrepreneur gets to choose the problem he works on. And if a problem is too hard, you work on a different problem where you can make progress. And the great challenge of being president is that you don't get to choose the problem you work on. The economy is collapsing or the economy is not collapsing. Our adversaries are attacking or our adversaries are uh, not attacking. And so I think the great challenge of public responsibility and the thing that those who criticize public leaders tend to greatly underestimate is that they have to confront the problems they confront rather than having the great privilege of looking around the world and finding a single challenge and focusing on that single challenge. Right. Larry, I thank you for being a comment. Thank you.